I'm going to pick computers next week. I pick computers. <laughs> oh, thanks. Computers are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I use one on occasion. You guys are all wrong. Technology is the best. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the JavaScript Jabber Show. Uh, this week, we have with us Jeremy Ashkenest. Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. Uh, passable. A- anyway, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Um, I'm Jeremy, and uh, I work at the interactive news team at the New York Times these days, um, right now mostly on our elections coverage. But in previous lives, you may know me from documentcloud.org, which was a night-funded um news challenge project that ended up releasing a lot of open source code like Backbone.js, which might be one of the topics we cover today, and Underscore. And then I also have uh, this fun little language called CoffeeScript that compiles into JavaScript. So my perspective is mostly working on, um, these days, news-oriented projects that have large, large, large JS components or are mostly um, done on the client side, and then trying to make that easier to accomplish. Sounds interesting. So you're doing programming over there in some journalistic uh, website? So, I mean, yeah. So so the Interactive News is a team inside the newsroom that's sort of on a parallel with multimedia and graphics that are also um, newsroom teams at the Times. And so the kind of stuff that we do ranges from, you know, apps for covering uh, Gitmo detainees and, and how they're progressing through the system to right now, like I said before, um, mostly elections coverage of the Republican primary. So that's like the maps on the homepage. Um, that you see with the live results coming in from the AP and that sort of thing. Oh, cool. All right. We also have on our panel a new panelist. Uh, that's Joaquim Larson. Do you want to introduce right. yourself? Um, yeah. Um, I'm just, a, you know, I go by Joe Developer, and that's basically kind of how I see myself. Um, just, um, just a run-of-the-mill developer, basically. I don't have a, a large GitHub profile. I just kind of uh, work for clients and try to get their stuff running. Uh, and, you know, I've I'm in really good company today. Uh, Jeremy Ashkenaz, he's a, he's a really great guy. I, I, I hope we get to talk about the ICE. Uh, I saw the ICE library on GitHub recently, which I uh, would imagine you're involved in. I'm not actually. That's, that's a, an upstairs thing, but it's an exciting um, step forward. So just for folks who didn't manage to see that, ICE was a uh, sort of a track. If you've ever used Word and you have track changes where you can see from all the different people who edit a document who's added what and who's deleted what, it was an implementation of that for any content editable field so that you can use it in like a WordPress blog, for example. So I think they're, they're thinking about using that for getting reporters and editors to uh, be able to start on the web instead of starting in our CMS for working on, working on more web, web-first stories. Cool. Okay, also on our Very panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Hey, um, yep, I'm here. Uh, so for those of you that haven't heard me before, I am a employee at Spotter RF, which is actually a radar company, but we do some interesting things with um, our browser client and some of our internal apps with uh, JavaScript, HTML5, and Node.js. And uh, I've written the Futures Library, if you've heard of that. All right, cool. Uh, we also have Jameson Dance. Hi, I'm Jameson Dance. Uh, I work at Spotter RF with AJ. So the things that he said also apply to me. Um, and yeah, that's about it. I'm excited to be here. All right, we also have Yehuda Katz. Hey, uh, you 
Huda, I promised to try to have my audio better this week. Um, not really he's sure in, how. He's in a smaller dungeon. I'm in a smaller dungeon. I have a snowball. Hopefully, it will be good. Um, I work on a bunch of stuff, uh, sort of the intersection of Ruby and JavaScript. Um, these days, most of my time on open source is Ember stuff and uh, Rails projects, Rails plugins that make it easier to work with client-side libraries. All right, cool. And I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Backbone.js. So uh, I don't know if there's a blood feud between Backbone and Ember, but uh, it should be interesting uh, to talk about. And I've actually been asking some of my friends about what they think about the two if they've used them both. And so um, I've gotten some insight on that. I, I still have yet to try Ember. I'm sorry, Yehuda. It's okay. I, I should point out there was uh, a couple of really good discussions that we had publicly in IRC this week, and we should definitely put them in the show, or last week, we should put them in the show notes and people should read them. I mean, we'll probably have a good discussion here, but I feel like... I think both, I don't want to speak for Jeremy, but I felt comfortable with people reading that and understanding what my position was, so. Yeah. All right, cool. Is there a good place to get that? Uh, I think Jeremy posted a gist. He can, I'm sure, link to it in the, in the room. All right, yeah, we can, provide the, we can provide the links. All right, cool. So, um, Jeremy, why don't you go ahead and kind of explain what Backbone uh, is and uh, how it's intended to be used, and then we can kind of start picking apart what we like and don't like about it. Sure thing. So Backbone.js is a uh, library for helping out with client-side MVC. So this is when you, I think lots of us have this experience where you start building a JavaScript-heavy web app and you're trying to do lots of things on the client side. You're trying to do optimistic rendering and keep yourself on one page without having to use lots of page refreshes um, and make it feel more like an application than like a website. And there are many different ways to approach this, and that's actually one of the exciting things about seeing all these different JavaScript client-side libraries um, come out of the woodwork. But one of the single sort of things that you start to realize as you're doing this is you get yourself into a really big mess if you end up with pieces of state scattered all over the DOM, right? So maybe it's as simple as the number of people in this um, in this chat in the Skype chat that we're having, or maybe it's some fancier kind of state with text and you know who's editing it. Whatever your state may be, if you end up with it scattered all over the DOM, your JavaScript gets really crazy, and whenever um, any state change happens, whenever something happens to the system, you make an update, um, you both have to you know, persist that change to the server, back to your database, so that it can be saved, and also update all the different pieces in the UI that might be looking at it. And this gets tricky, I think, um, mostly because it's so tempting with JavaScript and HTML to treat the document and the HTML as the source of truth and sort of use, because especially with jQuery, right? So jQuery is the most ubiquitous JavaScript library, and it has some data manipulation facilities like mapping um, and filtering, but basically it's, it's querying against the DOM. And so because it's so good at querying against the DOM, it's really tempting to have all your data in the DOM and just look it up. Um, and I think one of the first things you realize when you build one of these big apps is that you need to stop doing that. And you need to have a single source of data that your um, UI is just basically watching and reacting to changes in and, um, and rendering. And then when you, and you want to have a rich model layer for working with that data and doing your transformations and your computations and your calculations on it. So what Backbone is, Backbone is basically um, the, it's, it's, started out as the heart of Document Cloud. So Document Cloud is the Knight Foundation project that I mentioned um, that's a workspace for journalists to work with primary source documents. And so Backbone basically started out as, as the basic model and view layer that we had inside of Document Cloud for our, for our sort of standard views for rendering documents, annotations, users, projects, 
um, that sort of thing, entities. Um, so part of the part of the deal with Document Cloud being a night funded project under the News Challenge was that everything we did had to be released as open source. So during the entire process, we were trying to look at different aspects of the application and say, what would be useful as a standalone library and what can we pull out and make a standalone thing that other people can use for other news projects and other projects. And so Backbone was sort of the kernel of that um, structure for the application, the foundation level of the structure. So that's, that's its origins and that's the kind of things that uh, it helps you with. And I think that's a pretty good intro. All right, cool. So is it really an MVC? Because I noticed that you renamed uh, controllers to routers. Yeah, there's been a little bit of a struggle about that, right? So you already have the you already have the Rails Django sort of back and forth about what's a view and what's a template, and um, and so if you're a purist about it and and you're looking at views as reacting to changes like click events and stuff like that, then you could then you could probably think of backbone views as controllers instead of views. Yeah. But I like to call them views because they're responsible for a single piece of UI. Usually they're tied very very tightly to a DOM element and all of its contents. So in that sense, they're they're really, you know, view-like. But you also have templates. So if you want to so, call your templates views and your views controllers, feel free. So by the way, uh, Jeremy, I, I agree that the nomenclature is a big problem in general. I think everybody wants to call themselves MVC and not call themselves MVC, and then it becomes this massive pedantic thing. Um, I think there is a space for a controller object which is responsible for multiple elements. So Backbone defines a view as a essentially controller-like thing that is responsible for controlling one element. I think often when you get into a bigger application, you want to have an object that's responsible for multiple elements. Backbone has collections for this, but that's sort of kind of like a special case. So on, on the UI side, though, I think you'd also use a view. There's, you can also have bigger views that have that have multiple elements inside of them. Although there isn't a different type of object for that. But yeah, so so yes, I, I agree. It's important not to get pedantic um, about this, especially with MVC. Right? MVC is a super broad category. There are many different types all of libraries and systems that, exactly, exactly. And I think that's fine. I think that as long as you have this sort of basic um, distinction between the UI and the model, like that's the heart of MVC, right? Even yeah, if you yeah. don't have particular pieces. Usually there's UI model and then some intermediary layer. Um, and I think in Backbone, that's the view object, usually. I think that's fair, yeah. Yeah, I, so uh, I should just follow up. I. I agree that often, so like what um, Coco would call a view controller makes sense to be a view in Backbone or Ember. Uh, but there's definitely a case where you have, I think what Backbone uses collections for, there's a more general case of that. And uh, it's basically, it's not UI, it's representing application state. It's representing um, something that is presented in multiple views, multiple presentation locations, but it represents application state. So so I'm, I'm, that might be a little bit fuzzy because Backbone controllers don't really have any, oh, sorry, Backbone collections don't really have anything to do with uh, UI. They're, they're just collections of models and all of the data manipulation and aggregation functions that you want to do on your list of models. So mapping, reducing, filtering, selecting, all that kind of stuff where you're taking a list of, of model objects and getting subsets. Right, um, but, you, so, but I would sorry. I would be curious to hear more about about how Ember's controller controllers work. So I know that you guys have array controllers and that sort of thing. Yeah, so array controllers kind of fulfill a similar purpose. So the, what I meant specifically was um, you have this array of things, and that array of things isn't really persisted. Like there is a concept of what that array is often in terms of a query, but you would never like persist that entire array to the database. So yeah. the list of items that you happen to have locally is an app is application state, as are things like aggregates. So in a to-do list, which is the hello world example, how many items are remaining, um, et cetera, those things are 
uh, application state, they re reference things that happen to be transient in your application, but they're not view things specifically, right? They're just information that doesn't belong model layer because it's not really persistible. No, no, it does. I think it does belong in the model layer. So I think I think that it's a it's it's a bit of a red herring to to talk about a model layer that that directly um, is one to one with what happens on the server because that's never ever ever the case in client side code, right? Like that's one of the things that's one of the things that 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 uh, you need to sort of get past when you first do this is that you're not you're not expecting to have like an a Rails like Active Record base model in JavaScript. Where you're running arbitrary queries and it represents the entire table. First of all, because you know it's insecure, it's on the client side. You're not going to allow your client to make arbitrary queries against your database. And secondly, because it's impossible, right? Like there's no way you can fit your entire table across the pipe and get it into JavaScript to query against. So your your client side models represent the data and the models from the perspective of the browser and what you need to do. And that includes things like the to-do list, how many are left for this particular session, even though that that collection might not be persisted back. Uh, so so I, would, I would be comfortable, I guess, if you wanted to stick the collection into the model layer. Um, I think of it as a different thing. I think of there's like a bunch of objects that so in my mind, the model layer is maps well onto not the database tables, but onto the resources that are exposed from the server. And the controller layer is basically an intermediary that aggregates information from a bunch of models and exposes that information to the view layer. Mm. But I would be okay with someone saying that thing that you, you are saying is the controller layer is actually part of the model layer. I sure, it's all, it's all one big fuzzy mm -hmm. uh, wishy-washy yeah, MVC I, soup. You can, you can push and pull the boundaries around for sure. I think that's the great thing about Backbone. I mean, what Backbone did was basically say, okay, we're going to take a small part of what I'm assuming you guys use for, for much bigger projects and so we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna take this out and we're gonna open source this and this is gonna be something that people can build on you know that's why it's called build uh, backbone it's pr it's pretty empty you know it's very minimal and basically people can kind of put their own stuff on there and make it do whatever they want within the context of, of what they're working with and I think that's what kind of made made backbone like really great and that's why it's inspired a lot of things such as Ember and such as U3 and such as so many other frameworks that are now taking backbone inspired uh, MVC stuff and putting it in there. So so. The funny thing about this is that I think that I think that this type of thing that that we're talking about and that and that you guys talked about last week is the kind of thing that everyone who has done a big app in JavaScript has written before. It's not it's not new at all. And a lot of the ideas in Backbone I've seen, you know, in earlier in earlier um, jobs that I've worked for and people who have been doing this kind of thing um, from the from the early days of DHTML, like you know, even with some of the first you know webmail clients and stuff like that. Those you end up with the same sort of concepts of of models and UI, and you have to wrestle with that. And so I think that a lot of JavaScript developers who've been doing it for a while have done this before, you know, for one-off projects. And it's been really fun to see the explosion of of uh, libraries come out of the woodwork because everyone's like, oh, when I did it, I did it this way, and I liked it better that way. So I'm gonna, you know, make my own version that works a little bit differently. And I think that's great. Now that's I, one, I, that's one thing that I really like about the the variety that's out there too is that you have. You have something like Ember that is very opinionated that, you know, it's it's you do it this way. And, uh, you know, it because it's opinionated, kind of the convention over configuration thing that you get with Rails is that, you know, you can expect it to work in a different in the in a certain way, you know, all the time, every time. And it seems like Backbone gives you a lot more options if you want to customize, configure, whatever you know, it, it just gives you the kind of the bare bones and then you can work up from there to whatever you want. And so it, I think it really depends on your coding style as to which one you choose. And so people who are more used to the opinionated <clears throat> uh, way of doing things that you get from something like Ember um, would probably be more comfortable that way. 
but uh, I have a few friends that don't like some of the conventions that, that Ember puts in. And so they're like, yeah, if you could do something like Ember, but give me these other options over here that, that, you know, are kind of native built in, then, you know, I'd be happy with that framework. And I think that's where you see a lot of these coming up. But I think it's also very encouraging that you have all these options. So you can say, you know, I want something that, yeah, it just kind of handles everything for me. And as long as I do it the Ember way, then I'm happy. And, and in other cases, it's like, you know what, I just need a minimal model to handle this. You know, I, I'm going to customize these couple of things. I'm really going to think about it this way. And so you pull Backbone in, you hook it up, it gets it up and going really quickly. Um, it's a relatively uh, small library compared to some of the other ones. And, you know, you're off and running. So I want to I want to clarify one point, which is just basically. Um, so I've been doing convention over configuration for a long time. I consider jQuery to also be a convention over configuration type of library. Um, one thing that I learned starting with Merb and that I've pretty much taken with me the entire way is that it's fine to have convention over configuration, but you, it is bad to build the core library as convention over configuration. In other words, the convention over configuration ideally is a, a light defaults layer on top. It has a very, very big impact on how people use the library, but I think the idea that convention over configuration also means that it's impossible to drop down into something different is basically a relic of like Rails 1.0 era or 2.0 era. And um, th there are ways to strategically build a library that is very flexible under the hood. So if you actually want to go do stuff, it's fine. But ultimately, you most people use the defaults. Um, that, and I should be clear, I definitely think that if people are going to want to be under the hood all the time, a convention of a configuration library isn't for you. But the idea that you hit a wall and then you're just stuck because Ember or Rails didn't think of something is pretty much not how it works anymore. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. So that was and, a nice. And, way and I also, I also want to want to add to that that I don't think that it's that it's just a you know black and white. Either you're a convention over configuration or you're a configuration over convention. I think that there's definitely strong opinions. It's not just that you know Ember is opinionated and Backbone doesn't have opinions. I think both have opinions, mm -hmm. um, and both have opinions about you know, ways that, that other libraries do things that they disagree with or that they, or that they do agree with. Um, although, although Backbone definitely is of the opinion in many more cases that you should not have opinions. Yes, it does. It does try to be flexible to many different patterns and uses. That is, that is correct. And, 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 and in I, the public API, in the like, everyone should do this. So I, I, Ember totally under the hood supports, for instance, alternate template engines, but the public API, the way you're supposed to use Ember is you should just use handlebars. If you want to do something else, fine, here's how you do it. The public API, where Backbone is, we think that we should not make this decision for you at all, go to town. Exactly. Backbone what, thinks what, what you should be able to use any any template library that, so, that you So like. just just to quibble, I, Ember also thinks you should be able to use any template language you like, but we think that there's a win in saying, here's the one that we support well, that has a lot of integration. If you use it, you get additional wins. If you don't want to, that's fine, but you lose all the extra win. You lose all the extra stuff, and you're also not using a large part of what Ember gives you, right? You'd probably be ignoring 50% of the code base of Ember that you're including on the page if you didn't use handlebars, right? So you would probably, in that case, rip out. So again, this is definitely, I think, in terms of how people use it, this is not what we would tell people. But you you could rip out the Ember, Ember handlebars library, which is bundled in, ship everything else, and then roll your own templating layer. And that would... From the perspective of all the modules that come with Ember, that would be fine. The view layer doesn't care about Ember at all, uh, handlebars at all. The view layer just cares about an object that's a function that takes a context and returns a string. Right. right. So I've been I've been involved in a fair few discussions regarding refactoring of, of what you might call like legacy applications to be more 
um, responsive, you will use more in terms of responsive UIs. And what I found is that people are a little bit more, uh, they find backbone by itself easier to reason about because that it is that it is that flexible. So they can just say, okay, we're going to take this small manual piece, start from there and start to kind of jury rig our existing code into that and see, see what happens after that. Uh, whereas something uh, U3 or Ember or whatever, it's a little bit like, it's more of a feel of we have to go whole hog on this. And so there are a lot of people, a lot more people that have to be on board and there's a lot more that has to be read and kind of be reasoned about to be able to integrate that. I would definitely, I would quibble with that, but I, one no, no, sure. I mean, well, maybe maybe we can I mean, maybe yeah, we can get yeah, more more specific instead of instead of just you know feels I mean, feels easier or, or doesn't feel easier. The, like if we already the, we already talked about templates. Thing, yeah, I mean the lovely Sorry. thing about JavaScript is that it is so flexible, right? I mean, when you go in and override anything, you basically go in and, and make anything do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter if it's Ember or something else. I mean, of course you can because it's JavaScript. Uh, right? So the I. I would go beyond, I mean, I, obviously that's true, but like if you want to go use jQuery and like drop in a different strategy for doing document fragments, no, you cannot. Where Ember is actually built on the idea of like there's the core runtime, there's the mixing system, there's the view layer, there's handlebars, there's a state library, there's data, and those all things build on each other. So I, I think it, it is a different thing than saying JavaScript is a flexible language, and of course you can do anything from saying Ember specifically has parts of the system that do not care about the template layer. And that is an intentional part of the public API. So speaking speaking of the templating layers, since, since we're starting there, um, I've always I've wanted to ask uh, Yehuda how folks how he finds folks reacting to the pattern of of basically encoding some logic. You know, so hand, handlebars is is somewhat logicless templates, right? It takes inspiration from Mustache, but in conjunction with Ember, especially, you end up putting um, basically logic into your attribute tags in a very codified way so that Ember can understand what the particular piece of DOM represents in terms of the JavaScript model. So we're, as, as opposed to having HTML that knows nothing about, um, basically knows nothing about what your JavaScript model is, right? Inside your Ember views, you sort of expose it and you can see what hooks up to what. How do you find folks reacting to that? So first of all, handlebars is absolutely a compromise. Uh, it's a compromise between arbitrary code and no code. Um, but the, the basic idea is that the, the quote-unquote code, the parts of logic that are in there are, are designed to be very declarative. So the, the only things that you're supposed to be putting into a handlebars template in Ember, and we do a very a, a decent job of, of enforcing this in terms of what we expose by default, are declarative things. So um, an example is uh, we have computer properties. And so any logic, if you want to say like a conditional, you never say if foo and bar or baz you always say if a single property, and then the logic for what that property means goes into your JavaScript code, right? So it's, I think it's useful, and people find it useful to be able to have conditionals that automatically update, uh, loops that automatically update, but to limit what is, what is in those, that code to things that are declarative and that we can observe and analyze and say, okay, here's how we need to get this on the screen and update it later. All right. So this is something that I've got feelings about too, like, the um, <clears throat> the templating, I, I really don't get the whole handlebars thing other than that, you know, people are coming from PHP, so they want some sort of tag identifier. Like, my argument is, why not use what the DOM provides? So you've got class names in there that you can use semantically, so why not use those instead of putting in some handlebars brackets that then have to get parsed and then turned into a span tag that has that class name anyway? 
Uh, that's a that's a great uh, question, and I've actually worked with um, some libraries in the past where everything was DOM based, right? So so basically, you I mean you do it from JavaScript, right? So you'd be working in your JavaScript, you'd be building up what the HTML looks like, but every single call that you made would basically be a document create element call, and it was all done in terms of the DOM. And, um, and so so that's an sorry. interesting approach. One of the one of the big problems you run into first off is that it's about the slowest way you can possibly render UI in JavaScript is to do it all with the DOM. Um, and that for better or for worse, um, generating strings of HTML and then evaluating them all at once is about the fastest way that you could do UI in JavaScript. And so if you're doing anything performance intensive, and again, this is partly with older browsers because you can do pretty crazy things in Chrome and Firefox these days. But if you have to have it work in IE8 or IE7, um, you're going to run into limits if you try to use a DOM-only approach and you're trying to render a thousand elements and update it quickly. So that's, I, I one, that's it, one of the main things. I think there's so, another there's another point, which is... If you actually go look at, so there are other libraries that tell you, th that make the exact argument that you're making, and the end result looks exactly like handlebars, except way more verbose because you have all the XML cruft, right? So you have things that are loops. You have UL, a UL is a loop, and the UL inside of it essentially has exactly the same thing as what handlebars has, except as Jeremy points out, you now have to go find it in the DOM and do, and manually do DOM work. But, and it's, ex it looks, there's data for each, right? Instead of being able to say pound each, you have to say UL data for each. So it's you end up with the conceptually, abstraction-wise, exactly the same thing, except it's a lot more verbose. Right. What what I really like about mustache is that, or it's, uh, handlebars is that it's it's so similar to mustache. So you can also use it server side. Mustache is implemented in almost all server languages. So you can have server side templating and use the same templates in in the client as well. Uh, of so course, with Node.js, that that becomes a non-issue. But with a web app, that ends up becoming um, maybe, I don't know if Yehuda will uh, let me say this, but a handlebars dirty secret, right? Which is that if you're doing anything interesting in a, in a handlebars template, you're going to have your own helper functions. And your helper functions are both sophisticated and implemented in a particular language, which is going to be Java, JavaScript in this case. So it's not so a dirty in, secret, it's the whole thing is a pipe dream. To begin with. Right. So, so, so he doesn't even think it should be done. Right. So, so, so if if you have a nice, and we have this actually here at the Times, if you have a nice big handlebars application, um, you probably cannot render it in a different language. You probably have to run JavaScript on the server if you want to render it without. So there, there is one window. I so I could imagine um, the fact that you, that the helpers are separate means that you could still use the same templates and re-implement the helpers in Ruby or whatever. Again, I think the entire the node is awesome because did you know if you write in JavaScript, you write the same on the client and server. And if you use mustache, you use the same template. I, th I think the entire thing is a pipe dream. People are missing the, the context of what a client-side app and a server-side app is and thinking about it very superficially. So the end result is you imagine that something is cool. By now, shouldn't Node have done something cool? Like, shouldn't there be a demo of something really awesome happening? I think the fact is that there's just a totally different context for what you're doing on the server than the client. Well, I would so, understand... I I mean, if, if you look at some of the uh, if you look at some of the UE3 demos, for example, right? UE3 and UE2 they have some really heavy uh, JavaScript widgets, right? And because UE3 can run on the Node.js server, it can render those JS widgets on the server, uh, send them over as HTML, for example, for um, web mobile mobile browsers or otherwise um, uh, you know less powerful interfaces, and you can then 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 load the JS on the on the on the client behind the scenes. So I think I would I would echo Jeremy's dirty secret. I think in practice, I think it probably demos well, but I just I would easily imagine that actually trying to do it in practice will result in a large like having to have mega constraints that are not obvious. 
right? So you actually can't run any code that would be caring about client side state at all. All right, let, I'm, I'm going to. For the, for the bring... record, I'm still a, I'm still a believer in this uh, in this pipe dream, and I don't think I don't think that Node is necessarily there yet in terms of library support for doing everything that you needed to do on the server side. But I do think that there is, especially for you know for JavaScript web applications, um, value in being able to have the same code run on the client and the server, even even if it's still not really even if we haven't really reached that point yet. And, so, and I think this happens even even on a daily basis. So this afternoon, I'm trying to get together a little widget that's going to show the current state of the Republican primary and who's got how many delegates for a section front in on on NY Times. And um, we want it now. So we want to be able to update it client side because we want it to be live and we want it to always be able to pull from the JavaScript API the latest state of the race, but we also want to be able to bake it into the page um, server side, fit in the CMS and to have all the links in that thing be indexed by Google. So I have this kind of funky hybrid um, template right now where half of the UI and the, the pieces that are links and that are um, need and we want to be indexed by Google are being done in an ERB template. And there's also a client side template to make the API call and update the client side bit. And it's a little bit, you know, step two feet, one foot in each world. And it doesn't need to be. So I was... I'm willing to be convinced on on the pipe dream, but I want us to be honest about where we are today. Right. Yes, today it's hard. I was, right. was going to ask, so the, the benefits of doing it on the server instead of just always doing all of your templating on the client forever are... Google is the most obvious. Yeah, I was right? going to say, it's mostly for crawling, Cache. right? And then what Joachim said? But if you're doing yeah, a web app... Speed, basically, it's basically the initial load, right? You save a lot of time on the initial load because if you have a heavy JS web app, and you have an empty cache situation, then all of a sudden you have to load whatever half a meg of JavaScript before you even see something. Uh, whereas in this other way, you can load a, a very thin HTML uh, representation of that and then start loading the half meg of But it can't do anything. It, so in most cases, the fact that that HTML can't actually do anything is makes it not No, useful. but it can't. There is no reason why it can't do anything. Uh, right? It, 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 it don't have your JavaScript yet. No, so when it loads first, right? Then what it does is it hooks up in a plain old um, uh, get, right? So basically you click on something and you send a get request and you get a new page until the JavaScript comes in and hooks up those buttons to the Ajax powered uh, interface. So let's say you're on a mobile device and you go to a page and that page goes and downloads whatever you want to look okay. at. And, and it takes 10 seconds or 15 seconds to download the 500K of JavaScript that are needed to actually power the page. There, there is an argument that the fact that you can't actually do any, like the fact that the page will appear broken during that time, maybe... No, but it won't appear broken. It will because you'll try to do things that you are normally allowed to do on the page and they won't work because you have no JavaScript. No, but they will work because it will have uh, interfaces that aren't JavaScript reliant. Uh, okay, so I guess if you build your entire, if your entire app is built as though it was a regular non-JavaScript controlled app, perhaps that could work. Um, I would love to. I would love to see someone actually advocate that and in detail because that's, in my mind, that's pretty crazy, right? You're well, basically right. saying that you, people people do There's, advocate listen, that. Listen, that's listen. the full on, it's, it's, the full it's, on it's, progressive enhancement sort right. of standpoint. But, but no, yeah, but but just, the kind so of, Jeremy, the kind of just, JavaScript the kind of JavaScript apps that we're talking about here don't really work that way, confirm, right? Like it's not realistic. Jeremy, that's my point. Wait, my wait, point wait. Is not that people don't advocate it in the abstract. My point is that most people who build single page apps that are serious already have abandoned this pipe dream. Absolutely. No, no. Well, I don't no, understand. Listen, listen. Just let the user take 10 seconds to download it the first time. I mean, well, I, what's the big deal? I, so well, I think... Because people, they will, they will go somewhere else. If they have to wait 10 seconds for a page yeah, to load, they'll, they'll be go, like, 
but they'll also go somewhere else if you download something and then you have to wait 15 seconds and the page is broken. No, but listen, listen. Okay, imagine what we were talking about before, right? You have Ember.js in the client and that has a controller, model view, and all that shit, right? Then also imagine that you have Node.js in the background and you have a layer that translates these things from Ajax to normal post get interfaces. And that's what it renders on the server side. It serves that. And then once it serves that in the client and you get the JS libs, then that JS, JS uh, stuff goes in and changes those links to be fully Ajax powered. It's so not that broken. That, that means that you need to have an, you basically need to have a full HTML non, like, like you need to basically go back to progressive enhancement. Every single page, every single UI state that you want has to be able to be rendered on the server as HTML and the server has to know what the state is. So, it's so this is actually one of the abstraction reasons. layer. Right, exactly. This is one of the reasons why it's fun that everyone is is, is uh, pursuing their own style of uh, of client side application framework because it would be great to have someone who takes that idea to the extreme and creates a library where sort of all of the things that you can express, you're only allowed to express things that can be done on both and that can be expressed in terms of you know get post, um, basically just get and post of forms as well as you know the JavaScript enhanced equivalents and then see how well that works out. So I think, something, I think something like Seaside would probably be necessary to make it work well. But so, Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I will add, articulate that I personally would not want to build this app. And I, I would I would concur with you. Yes. This oh. is like. Well, seems- OK, I'm, I'm going to turn the bus here a little bit. Um, <laughs> we, we did bring Jeremy on to talk about Backbone and we've kind of gone off of a tangent of a tangent of a tangent and it's really interesting to to see where this is going and that's why i'm happy to listen but at the same time um i do want our uh our listeners to kind of get an idea of what backbone's about and we've talked about some of it i'm a little curious as to uh uh, what what you see this as the strengths of backbone jeremy what do i see as the strengths um basically you know if readers are curious and and and, and we want to talk about strengths. I think the one thing that constantly um, inspires and amazes me um, all the time is that basically Backbone's only been out there for a little bit over a year. I think it was October, uh, what would that be? Oh, 10, that, um, that, that we launched it. Um, and in, in that incredibly short amount of time, if you go to backbonejs.org and scroll down through the examples, there have been a ridiculous amount of amazing apps in all different contexts that have been built with it. Um, most of them I don't know anything about until they launch or weeks or months after. And people are using it for, you know, for sort of native slash um, web hybrid experiences on phones. If you're LinkedIn or um, SoundCloud, people use it for, you know, large, sophisticated desktop style web apps. People use it for web page galleries. You know, people are using it for payment processor management systems. It's in an in-game browser inside of a, inside of a 3D shoot 'em up um, it's being used in a desktop app that's being powered by Node.js for for building maps. It's sort of it's sort of found all these really fascinating nooks and crannies, um, and all these people using it in different ways. Some of which are uh, actually pursuing the pipe dream of of using Backbone models, the same model code on the on the server side in Node and on the client side in the browser. So I think that's strength number one through ten at least. Okay, so I have one other question for you, and. Uh this is just something that uh, I've noticed in using um, Backbone myself, and that is, is let's say that um, I have a website and I have kind of a main content, and then I have a sidebar content. And so let's say that I click something in the main content that has a list of, I don't know, posts. Let's say it's a Twitter app. So, so uh, they're like Twitter posts or tweets. 
And so I click something else because I have a menu over there and it loads a different set of tweets over on the right side. And I have the option to change something on the right side. Um, those are two different collections, the way that I have it implemented. And so when I change something on the right side, it doesn't reflect on the left side. Uh, is is there a good way of handling that? Or is that something that isn't just that sure. uh, it's not made to handle or... No, there's definitely good ways of handling that. So, I mean, so ideally, if if um, the the idea with modeling something, right, whether it's in a database relationally or client side in terms of objects, is that you have one place to go look at the model and one source of state for that model, right? You have you don't have two different rows in your database. Um, one of which is when the thing is looked at through a certain lens, and another one is when it's looked at through a different lens. Because then, if you change one, the other one doesn't get updated. Right. And it's really the same principle on the client side. So, ideally, if you have two different tweets, but it's the same tweet, that should be one model. And when you make a change to that model, it can be in both collections, and both collections will have that change event, and both views will re-render off of those collections. So maybe maybe instead of just two collections, one for each for the left and one for the right, you end up with three, right? And the first one is where is where the canonical source of all of your tweets are, and then the two just look into that and pull tweets out, and maybe they're sharing sometimes. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, so does anyone else have questions about Backbone? We, we have a few minutes before we have to get to the picks. Maybe Yehuda's got some questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't really have any questions. So I guess my main, so the main thing that I think that is different between something like Backbone or Sinatra in Ruby and something like Ember or Rails is what you do when patterns become conventional. And I think uh, Sinatra and Backbone take the approach of that is the community's job. Please feel free to write plugins, write extensions, write blog posts, put up backbonepatterns.com. But we're basically done. We have scoped out the problem. And if there's obvious things that a lot of people are doing, go to town, but that's not in scope. Where Rails and Ember say, okay, over time, people are adding different patterns. Uh, people are using these patterns. Let's try to make it so you don't have to personally find it on your own. And I guess, first of all, am I characterizing it correctly? Or would you? No, I don't think, I don't think you need to draw that parallel, right? Like Sinatra and Backbone are not the same thing, and Rails and Ember are not the same thing. They're four different projects, and they approach things differently. And I'd be glad to describe what I think the Backbone approach would be to pulling in patterns and plugins, which would be that if it's something that is useful for 80 or 90% of the apps out there, then we should absolutely be doing it. So that's true both in terms of the basic utility functions on collections. You know, like not everyone is going to use, I don't even know what these things are, right? Not everyone is going to use sum and shuffle and sorted index and group by and sort by and, and every and reject and include and all those kinds of convenience array functions. Not, not all apps are going to need that, but they're going to be handy for most people. So we include them because it's easy to do. And they're, they're also small and lightweight. Um, and, and so that's why it's something that, that we think is a good idea for Backbone. Um, but I don't think, yes, but if it's, but if it's something that, you know, might be useful for 30% of apps, but is a big heavy change, then, then yes, that shouldn't be rolled so, in. So and, a good, a good parallel would be rest in rail. So there's actually like a third thing here. The elephant in the room, which is sometimes you discover patterns, and if you make them a core thing, they become a thing that everyone uses. So jQuery uh, added deferreds under this under this idea. Um, this is a good pattern. We think this is a good idea. If we put it in, it will be the canonical choice for eighty or ninety percent of people. Um, so that yes, that is the elephant in the room, and I think that's that has that has much less to do with engineering than it does with personal taste, right? It may or may not be you know, a good pattern and it may or may not be good for some group of people, but that's sort of, you can't really answer that question, right? 
So I agree that, it, I mean, Rails has everything to do with DHH's personal taste, but at the end of the day, what you name your actions in a controller doesn't matter enough to, make, to, to not have a default, right? Giving people an answer so they don't have to think about it is a bigger win than saying, you might not agree with DHH, so feel free to name it whatever you want. Right. Okay. All right. So one other thing that I wanted to do before we uh, got into the picks was we did get an email um, a little bit ago, and that was um, from Jonathan Mahoney. Um, and it looks like he's got a .eu address, so he's, he's over in Europe somewhere. Um, he said, you've mentioned Backbone several times, which is my MV star framework of choice when building web apps. However, there are two projects I think deserve a mention when discussing Backbone. There's Backbone Model Binding and Backbone Marionette, both by Derek Bailey. The first adds knockout.js style uh, data bindings, and the second adds a really nice abstraction layer for forming composite applications. Um, and, and this kind of led me into another question. Have you seen a lot of people adding things to Backbone? Um, sort of outside of the main uh, tree, I guess. Uh, yes, absolutely, and that's and that's how it's supposed to work. So the idea is, if you're doing a large app um, built on Backbone, you will probably start with Backbone. Um, you may end up making your own base class that adds, you know, special functionality that you need for your app. Maybe that's local storage, like sort of right through local storage caching. Maybe that's a WebSocket backend instead of the default sort of jQuery.ajax. Um, REST backend, maybe that's sophisticated nested views, maybe that's a client server thing. So yes, I think that there's lots of people doing that inside of their own applications, and there's also people who have been generous enough to share their extras with the community by doing extensions. Huh. All right. And so, if, you're, if you're asking about those extensions specifically, we can get into that too. Have you used I them? Just, um, I haven't. I haven't used them for projects. Um, but the whole, but the, but the, the whole data binding. Um, topic is an interesting one because that that is one of the um, main distinguishing um, points in philosophy between uh, Backbone and Ember about how bindings should be treated. Hmm. All right. Jameson, were you going to say something? I was just going to ask if there's a like a defined architecture for writing add-ons to Backbone or do people kind of just roll it however they want? No, so it's a pretty it's a pretty small library. Like, there's not really anything. If you so the entire source is annotated with the explicit idea that you should be, you know, feeling free if, if something's not working to dig in and figure out how it works, and also to dig in and override things if you find the need. Um, so there really isn't much in the source and in the API that's not public. There's I think we actually got rid of a few more private methods. I think it's the case that you know 95% of the methods inside inside all the different backbone classes are public um and and thus um suitable for overriding if you need different behavior so so basically the whole thing's a public api yeah i should mention that is essentially true about ember except that fewer people do it hmm. right so the the i think the general idea of like build your entire library you know in a way that the APIs that are exposed are sort of are thought through well enough so that if someone wants to override them, there's a clear path to doing so. It's clearly a good idea. Yeah, and that it won't break anything else, right? And also that there's hooks. So, like in in terms yeah. of backbone, one of the ways that that happens is with sync. So people have people. So in terms of persisting your data to the server, people have really you know interesting requirements, right? Like maybe you have the ability to control what the server tells you, but maybe you don't. So backbone gives you hooks so that you can have you have you know, add a parse me method. So whenever you get server side data, you can you have an opportunity to translate it before it gets turned into model objects. You have the ability to override the sync function, which is what gets the single function that gets called every time you try to make a 
save a change to the server, um, both at the model, the individual model level, and at the collection level. So you can say all of my all of my collections are backed by my main Rails app, except for this one that goes over to the Twitter API and this other one that goes over to my credit card processor. And so those two collections, I'm going to change the sync function to go to a different place and to behave in a different way. So there are there are lots of hooks sort of in there, yeah. and people are actually adding more all the time for things yeah, like and that. I, I definitely agree that if you think things through that way in the first place, you end up with it's a lot easier for people who come up with an unexpected thing to do to fix to do what they need to do. Um, I, I do not consider that a distinction between backbone and Ember. I think that's just good architecture. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Um, let's start with uh, Jameson. So my first pick is uh, Matt Mites blog. He's a he's a uh, I think he's a professor at the University of Utah. He teaches programming languages, but his blog posts are amazing. Um, they're not. Some of them get very academic. If you don't care about the in-depth topic of programming languages, then you might want to skip some of them. But he, he has some great ones about just like Unix patterns, different shell utilities. Um, his blog is great. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is Adi Osmani. Is that how you say his name? I don't know. He, he's a JavaScript guy at AOL. And he did a series of videos called Scaling JavaScript Applications. Um, they just got put up on Vimeo a couple weeks ago. And he talks a lot about uh, different paradigms of organizing your JavaScript code for beyond just the, the store everything in the DOM, like Jeremy talked about. Um, so, so it's about an hour long spread across these three videos. Um, he talks a lot about the different frameworks and a lot about the underlying principles as well. So it's not just like how to use Backbone, but it's how kind of what are the ideas that, that went into Backbone and other frameworks as well. Um, so I'll, I'll link to those, but those are great. They're well worth an hour of your time to watch. All right, cool. AJ, what are your picks? Uh, so first off, the site that we use for our feedback, UserVoice.com. Um, I was really pleased with them when uh, I asked them if our the Utah JS user group could have a a full account, and they have a promo code for all people that are um, doing nonprofit type stuff. So I thought that was really cool, and they've got a nice service. So want to give a, a shout out to them for that, and. Um, also, there apparently there was a, a music video that went on around the time of the Super Bowl by OK Go, and it was very reminiscent of this video I saw before for a, a phone commercial. And they're both very interesting because they they use unconventional methods to make music. And so I I've got the YouTube link that I'll share, but. The, the commercial for the phone is called NTT Docomo. It's the wooden phone, and they have a ball that rolls through the forest like a mile long on different blocks that make different sounds as it rolls down this hill. That's sweet. So it's like a Rube Goldberg type thing. Yeah, it's like Rube Goldberg with music, and then OK Go had one too, but I didn't think it was as original because other people have been doing stuff since that one. All right. Yehuda, what are your picks? Um, so I have two, uh, two picks, two and a half picks. Uh, first of all, es5.github.com. Um, it's the annotated ECMAScript 5.1 spec. And I, I, I think people in general should probably read specs more than they do. I, obviously, it's not like a noob thing, but I think people wait long till far too late in their development leveling up to go read specs. So uh, those are my two picks today. es5.github.com is an annotated ECMAScript spec with a lot of um, interesting annotations and people sh I, I would recommend like reading it 
front to back one day. Um, and the other one is the HTML5 spec author view. Uh, that's this guy. And that's basically a version of the spec without the algorithms. So there's like what a web browser needs to do in order to implement the, the cache, for instance. And that's interesting, perhaps could be a useful thing to read. But most of the time, you just want a good, clear description of what the feature is. And um, I think with the algorithms out, it's easier to read the whole HTML5 spec front to back. Um, so uh, I do this on a regular basis, and I would recommend people do. And in the, in the HTML5 spec, you can actually subscribe to changes for specific parts. So if you're really interested in Canvas, you can do a subscription to changes in Canvas. I think that's one of the sections. Um, and uh, and that's, that's cool if you're just like trying to become notified if there are changes. Um, and then uh, not a pick, but kudos to Google for releasing Chrome for Android. That actually excites me a lot. All right. Um, Joaquin, what are your picks? Well, I, I didn't really pick any before, but uh, one of the things I've been spending on a lot of time on the last few weeks has been a phone gap, which is kind of interesting. And phone gap is, you know, I'm pretty sure many of you know it, but it's basically an abstraction layer that gives you native um, functionality from JavaScript HTML apps that you run within iPhone or Android phones or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Nitobi, the company behind it, just got uh, purchased by Adobe and Adobe and IBM and um, uh, Microsoft and a lot of other companies are putting a lot of resources into uh, getting it uh, more stable. Uh, so it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, I find. Yeah, PhoneGap, I think, was also accepted into the Apache Foundation. So That's right. That's right. And there's a lot of work going on there with the Cord uh, got to rename to Callback and then they renamed to Cordova. And so there's, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of a bureaucracy going on right now. But hopefully they get a stable in the next uh, few, few weeks or months. Yeah, I Isn't think that that's... projects go to die? Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it depends. Post, um, post. I went to ApacheCon this fall and, uh, yeah, the, the incubator is kind of an interesting program because they basically have to go in and make sure that it will line up with the Apache license. And so that that's why, you know, you, you see them changing names and doing all this other stuff is because they're trying to avoid any collisions with uh, copyrights, trademarks and any proprietary or whatever software. So, all right. All right. Well, I mean, I, you know, I like, I love, I love the idea of it. You know, I mean, we web developers, I think we're like, we're blessed, you know, our, our stuff runs everywhere. And now it can run like a few more places as well uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, get better access to, uh, to native uh, components. Yeah. All right. Um, cool. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and put up a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is, is I, uh, I was listening to a podcast. It's the South Geek Ramble and Review. And uh, anyway, the first like three minutes were actually the sound from a video that I found on YouTube. And uh, the video is uh, Gmail Man. And... Uh, it's, it's actually a Microsoft commercial, but it's pretty funny. And so uh, I'll go ahead and share that because I, I, I was laughing for a while about that one. Um, and then uh, one other thing I've been uh, working out and uh, count my calories so that I can get my diabetes under control. And I've been using um, a, a system that's called MyFitnessPal. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it, it really is just that. It's a calorie counter and you can uh, also track your uh, workouts on it. And so I've been putting them in there and I've also been putting them up on the dailymile.com or dailymile.com. And so I've really been enjoying those. Um, as far as uh, technical picks go, um, I've really, uh, I'm going to pick one that everybody uses, but 
you know, every time I use it, I'm just impressed with everything that goes into it, and that's jQuery. So um, I'm just going to give them a plug because I think they're really cool. I'm going to pick computers next week. I pick computers. <laughs> oh, thanks. Computers are awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I use one on occasion. You guys are all wrong. Technology is the best. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jeremy, what are your picks? Um, this is the first I'm hearing of it, so I will pick one to match uh, Yehuda's, which is uh, the ES Discuss mailing list on mail.mozilla.org is a woefully Ooh, underread underread mailing list um, where all the folks who are working on the next version of JavaScript talk about um, basically what it's going to be and why it should be certain ways and, and the things that they don't like and they're going to try to fix. So if you're interested, if you're doing any kind of JavaScript work at all and you're interested in where the language is heading, um, it's a must read or at least to catch up on, you know, a couple times a month and skim through the new topics. And I, I, have, I have a question about that. Um, sure. What if you're not a programming language expert or you feel intimidated by all the, the academia that goes on. Is there a more, is there either a good introduction to those topics or, or a more digestible summary? No, or, although that would be good, know, good for someone to, to write. It's pretty much, it's pretty much the nitty gritty of, uh, of what they're working on. So usually that means you don't need to be an expert. They're not talking about super arcane stuff. It's like, you know, everyone has trouble with, you know, function statements versus function okay. expressions versus name function expressions. And although maybe that does sound a little bit intimidating, but like, you know, you know, like a function statement is, and then when you, when you assign a function to a variable. And so they're talking about, you know, like when that breaks and when it works well and that kind of thing. Okay. And I, yeah. and I think about what they're doing is that like every uh, kind of you know, proposal has to have a, a working script or, a, you know, has to have like a code examples of how it's going to work in, the, in, in the real life. So it is kind of accessible. You can kind of see like, okay, well, this is what, what I would have to be working with in the future if this, you know, goes forward. I definitely agree more people should be reading it and uh, should be chiming in. And I, I also say a lot of people complain a lot about like, I can't, I don't know what's going on. These guys are just doing stuff behind smoke-filled rooms. And it's actually, as far as I can tell, there aren't a lot of smoke-filled rooms. Um, there are definitely some decisions that get made out of the public eye, but there's a ton of opportunity for people to provide feedback. And I think the standards bodies really want that. Like I spent a bunch of time contributing and people were excited about that. So for people out there who have time and are interested in participating in the future of the web, there, there is a way to do that and you should do it. Besides, you only get smoke filled rooms and something's on fire. So this is a good point. All right. All right. All right. Awesome. So uh, we'll wrap this up real quick. Couple of uh, business items first. If you go to uh, JavaScriptJabber dot is it JavaScriptJabber dot UserVoice dot com or JSJabber? Unknown. JSJabber. JSJabber dot UserVoice dot com. You can uh, suggest topics for us. Um, that's something that we really appreciate because then we know what you want to hear about. Um, one other thing is that we are in iTunes. So if you go to iTunes, you can subscribe there. You can also leave us a review. Um, if you do subscribe and you do leave us a review, that really helps us out because, um, it kind of helps bring us to the top of the list when people are looking for JavaScript stuff. So, uh, go ahead and do that. If you're listening on some other device, um, I do have a subscribe link up there. And, uh, so, you know, go ahead and subscribe on that, uh, just off of the RSS feed. And uh, outside of that, um, we'll catch you next week.